Welcome to Southside Presbyterian Church. The following sermon was taken from our Sunday gathering. If you'd like to find out more, or if we can help you on your journey in faith, head to our website, www.southsidepc.org, or visit us any Sunday morning at 9am. Good morning. So this morning we're going to be reading from uh, John chapter 7, verses 1 to 13. And you can find this on the Church Bibles on page 866 down at the bottom, or you can follow on the screen behind me. So John chapter 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee, and he did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea, so that disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore, Jesus told them, My time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I am not going up to the festival because any time has not fully come yet. After he had said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he is a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. Good morning, everybody. Uh, It's good to be here again. It's good to be looking into God's word and be on this journey of getting to know God better. My name's Ross, if we haven't met. But it is a wonderful morning that we can come together as a church family just to draw near to our uh, our Father God, but we do that through Jesus, which we'll be working hard at this morning. We're going to be covering two chapters this morning. We're going to be moving fairly quickly, but uh, we're just going to pick up on two really interesting stories that will help us understand who Jesus is. But how about we pray first that, uh, that, that he'll help us to understand who he is. Dear Father, we thank you for sending Jesus to walk this earth. We thank you for sending him to walk in our shoes, to live as a man, to relate to people so that we might know you in a way that we understand. Lord, we pray as we reflect on that this morning that you would help us to to get our head around who is this Jesus and why he should be worshipped as Lord. And Lord, we pray that you'd open our hearts to that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Some years ago, I went to a conference, and sometimes if I go to somewhere new, I'm always asking a few questions, a bit sceptical, is this going to be any good or not? So before I went, I googled it up, uh, it was highly recommended, this conference to me, um, is it worth going? Googled up the main speaker, oh yeah, the speaker looked pretty good, somebody I'd like to meet. Uh, so I went out and 
went to this conference one, one night and as I pulled up to this place I'd never been to before, uh, cars everywhere, but went to the auditorium and there's no one there, everybody's out the back having dinner before they come back in and I was sort of a little bit lost and one person come up to greet me and I'm sort of, oh, thank you, I don't feel too weirded out by this and uh, we're just chatting, another guy, similar age to myself and we got talking and I said to him, uh, have you been to one of these conferences before? And he says, no, no, this is my first one. I'm like, oh, cool, me too. I said, oh, where are you from? Do you live around here? He says, no, no, I'm from Sydney, actually. I'm going, wow, you come up all the way for this conference? And he says, yeah, I did. I'm thinking, wow, this has got a good reputation, this conference has. So, you know, I thought I'd push it a little bit further, and you might know what's coming. Uh, I said to him, oh, so how are the talks? And he said, oh, I think they're going pretty good. You might know what's coming, but I didn't at that point in time. So I said to him, um, just, what do you mean? You think they're going good. Haven't you been able to be in to hear the talks? And he said, well, I'm actually the one giving the talks. I'm the main speaker. And you probably should ask someone else how they're going. And it was at that point, I'm like, okay, where do I find a seat to sit down? Because, you know, <laughs> this conversation, you know, I didn't recognise who he was, which was got to a point of being really awkward. Um, now, I'm sure you can relate to that, but my fear is that I'm probably the only one that does this sort of thing. Um, but it's, it's a real problem when you don't recognise the people you're talking to, particularly if you should know who they are. And this is what's going on time and time again as we go through the Gospel of John, looking at Jesus, that people just don't recognise him. Jesus comes as the Son of God, but people are just trying to... Wait. You're a man. How can you be God? How does that work? And we get John, uh, the, the disciple John, who's writing this account for us to, to learn and listen to and just learn more about Jesus. You think John would be doing the sales pitch to us, reading about Jesus years later, generations later, hundreds of years later, going, putting on the real marketing spiel. You need to know this Jesus. He's awesome. He's powerful. He's got crowds coming to him. He's Mr. Popular. He's like the first century influencer, you know, he's one of those guys that you should, you should get to know. But actually what John does in, the, in his writing is just say, actually, a lot of people are wrestling with who Jesus is. Why Jesus? Why follow Jesus? Because what we're seeing is just this man that's going around stirring the pot. We see it uh, in the passage we had read for us, a classic, when... Uh, his brothers start stirring the pot for Jesus. Now, you can imagine being Jesus' brother. That wouldn't be an easy gig. You know, Jesus was the eldest. You know, Joseph and Mary had Jesus. Uh, then he had, we think about four brothers and, and some sisters are referred to as well. Um, but his brothers are here stirring him. They're going, why don't you, Mr. Popular, you know, you want to be great and grand, go to the festival, show your thing to all your amazing disciples. And they're just being cheeky at him because they really don't believe he is who he claims to be. Now, you've got to be a little bit sympathetic because they're probably really familiar with Jesus. You know, this is Jesus, their brother. They probably shared a room with him. Probably saw him walk around the house in you know, his old daggy clothes because that's what you do when you're at home and when you're with family. They're probably being told by their mother, I can imagine Mary uh, just going, you know, you boys, you know, behave yourself. Why aren't you more like your brother, Jesus? Be like Jesus. So they're always being compared to him. Now it's chipping away at them. I don't know what, I'm the older brother, so I'm sure my younger brother experienced about that me. You should be more like your brother Ross. But she's saying, you should be more like your brother Jesus. So he's like, they're like, they've already got this 
chip on their shoulders. I suspect, actually, Mary might have been the one who invented, you know, those little uh, bracelet things. What would Jesus do? She'd put it on her, on her sons going, be like Jesus. Look, look, what would Jesus do in this? Because he's the perfect child. He's God. But yet his brother's like, no, he's just our brother. So they're stirring him. We know he's, he's a boy and now he's a man and now they're giving him a bit of cheek of just going... Go to the festival. Why don't you show, show everybody how impressive you are there? But they're definitely saying it tongue-in-cheek because they don't believe. But then John tells us how Jesus is uh, received at this point in time. It's almost like a jury. Everybody's been talking about him. Everybody's been thinking about him. So we hear that people are saying, some say he's a good man. Some say, he's, no, he's a bad man. He's deceiving people. But everybody's you know, hush hush because it's the Jewish leaders that are going to wanting to kill Jesus, and anybody who supports him are in trouble as well. But this is really important. Why does John not just give us the good news about Jesus and you know, anything negative like that just shut us out? Just tell us, this is Mr. Popular, you need to follow him. See, I think what's going on for John is actually we all need to weigh this up. It's a really hard thing to work out Jesus, the man who was born uh, just like us, walked around just like us, ate and drank just like us, but yet he's God. And this is really important for us to hold together. How do we do that? Because if we don't do that, we get a distorted view of not only who Jesus is, but also who God is and how we know God. So I think John goes to great length, in fact, chapters, with this tension, how can this man be God? And it's, we need to get that right so we can actually experience knowing Jesus, knowing God, and knowing the right way to experience him. He gives us two scenes, uh, first in chapter 7, the second one, chapter 8. The first one uh, we see is Jesus claiming he's at the Festival of Tabernacles, um, and he... Uh, and he talks about being um, his coming as, sorry, here we go. Uh, he goes to the tabernacles and he says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. It's like, I'm the one that's going to quench your thirst. Now, the problem with us reading it so many years later, we can just go, wow, he's refreshing, that's nice. But it's actually the scenes where he's saying it that really upsets people. So we're just going to spend a couple of minutes just why is this so controversial for him? Uh, he's at this Feast of Tabernacles, like the first reading said, he says to his brothers, I'm not going to go, but actually halfway through this festival he does turn up. This is a festival that the Jews had um, that went for seven days, it was seven nights, eight days. This was like the equivalent to us of maybe Easter, religious festival, good time, we all go camping, we all remember Jesus, but it's like for a week long, on their calendar every year. And the idea is to remember what God had done in the past. So in the past, they think back, the old tabernacles might, um, or booths might give it away. They're remembering back at a time where they had to live in tents. Back when God had saved Israel from the Egyptians. They were in slavery. God rescued them from Pharaoh, brought them out into the promised land. And God was providing everything for them. And because they resisted about going to the promised land, it made their wandering in the desert 40 years. But during that 40 years, living in tents, God provided for them food, water, and he still led them into the promised land. 
the land where they had everything they ever wanted. And this festival was a week-long party. It was, it's the biggest religious event that was meant to give you so much joy. There's nothing serious or staunch about it. It was like party every night. So what you had to do is build yourself a tent. This is the, Jew, the Jews in Jerusalem still do this today. And so this is a picture of recent ones where on the back of their house or even on their roofs, they'll build this temporary shack and they're meant to sleep in there and have their meals in there. Just to remember what happened when God rescued them and how good that was to, to, to trust God and get into the promised land. And what they'd do over this week long, the, the festival would build up every night. So there was parties, uh, there were some ceremonies, lots of music, and up to the eighth day or the seventh night, the last night, it would come together in this big all-night party. It's recorded that back in the day, the Jerusalem was lit up with candles and, and fire like daylight because everybody wanted to stay up all night. The people playing the music was actually the priests out of the temple, so all the temple priests were into it as well. Uh, the wine flowed, as in it was party, uh, and people would stay up all night, remembering what God had done for them past, rejoicing in that, and being reminded to trust Him in the future. It was a great season, a week long. It's in your calendar. You have to have the week off to be there. The other part of this ceremony that... that the, uh, part of the, the week long is a ceremony and it's called the water ceremony where they'd, uh, the priest would go down just at sunup, would go down to the um, pool of Shiloh and fill up their jugs of water and, you know, in a ceremony, walk back up into Jerusalem, they'd go to the temple uh, and they'd go to near where the altars are, where they'd make the sacrifices in front of the temple and they'd tip their water into big golden jugs and the water would go into those jugs. Then uh, everybody would make their sacrifices for the morning. And after they'd make their sacrifices to God for the morning, they would tip the water over the altar, just to sort of wash it clean. The water would run away. But the water was also to remind them how God supplied them water in the desert. You need water for life. Water symbolizes life. So to get this water reminded God provided them in the past. They're celebrating it now. But they are also looking to the future. This festival happened, actually on our calendar, it was only just last week this happened. But this uh, leads into the wet season. And they're going, God, we're trusting you that you'll supply us water for our crops for our next season. So this ceremony was a part, the water ceremony was a big part of it, which climaxed uh, as well as each day of, of the ceremony. So when we get to what John is saying, on the last and greatest day of the festival... So this is um, after the seventh night into the eighth day. This is the last day, the big festival. People have been partying all night. They're celebrating. God is so good to us. And we're committing our, our next season to God as well. And this is, you know, the music's still playing. Everybody's still happy. This is good times. This is why Jesus had to stand up and in a loud voice to speak. Because everybody's still making noise because they're still uh, excited. Let anyone who is thirsty... Come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Now, hang on a minute. We've just had this amazing time of party celebrating God. God, we might say in inverted commas, because what does God really mean? It's a pretty loose term when we say God. 
God has been providing us life through water. God did it in the past. You can only find life through God. But now this man stands up and he says, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. Now hang on. We're comfortable in saying we go to God to drink. God gives life. God will quench our thirst. But you, this man who's standing up in front of them, yeah, that's, that's a stretch, isn't it? But then he says, whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from them. You go, hang on. We have to go to God. God supplies the water. God supplies life. You're saying if we follow you, that we will have that life and actually life will flow from us. In fact, that, that we will, in a sense, we won't be distant anymore. We'll be brought in closely to this stream of living water, so close that we'll be a part of it. That's a big claim. A big claim. Particularly in a festival that celebrates God. Now, what Jesus is not saying, he's not saying, yeah, there was a God who did that, but I'm a better God. He's not saying that at all. He actually fleshes out over a long conversation, I'm the same God. The festival that you celebrate, all that stuff, that major turning point in history. They were in slavery. God saved them and took them into the promised land. That was the big turning point. Now what he's saying, I'm the same God. In fact, all that was pointing to show you who I am. And I am the big turning point in history. Believe in me. Me. And I'll change history by changing your life. and Changing humanity from now on. They'll have life in me. This is a big turning point in history. Now, if you're sitting there watching, you've just had a week-long party, you might have had a bit to drink, there's music going on, and you know it's all around the temple, so you know we're doing things that pleases God. And you kind of might think, it doesn't get any better than this. But Jesus, this man who stands up in front of you, says, yeah, it gets a whole lot better than this. But believe in me, because I'm the one who can give you living water. You'll be thirsty again later, I'm the one who can give you living water. How are people going to handle this? Because it sounds exciting from sitting 2,000 years later. But these people go on... Oh, sorry, I meant to explain. The, the whole living water that you'll follow. John adds a little bit explaining what Jesus really meant by that. He meant by the Spirit who... For those who believe in him, who are later to receive Jesus, receive the Spirit... Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not been glorified. Later on, John says, we're going to see this play out, how Jesus will fill people with God, will bring them to the self, and will, the, the Spirit will work through people to give that living water to others. But on hearing these words, some people said, well, surely this man's a prophet. You know, he's a man of God. He's saying godly things. Others said, no, he's the Messiah. He's God's king, that means. But others said, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? It's almost like he's too familiar. We know where he's from. He's from down the road. And coming from Galilee is a little bit like for us to say, look, we know where he's from. He's from Ipswich or somewhere out that way. The, you know, they're too familiar. We know what good comes out of there. Maybe Alfie Langer or a couple others. But what good comes out of there? They've got some good questions like that. He's too familiar. He's just a man. How can he claim this stuff? So some wanted to seize him. He's no good. He's corrupt. Well, let's get rid of him, knock him off. But it's a big lesson. You see this tension. How can this man be saying such profound things and making these such big claims? 
We go into chapter 8, and here we're, we're situated in the temple. This is a different occasion, different day. The festival's gone, but we're back gathered around the temple. And at the temple is, is where you come to draw near to God, get into God's mind. You know, if you want to, uh, if you're puzzled about something, you go to the temple and the, through the, the priests and the scribes, they'll teach you about God and help you understand who God is to get wisdom from God. But Jesus is there and he starts talking about, uh, actually, it's on the verse. In, in 8.12, he says, Jesus spoke again to the people. He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So what he's saying now is, actually, if you want to be enlightened, like wisdom, don't be kept in the dark. But if you want answers, come to me. I am the light of the world. Come to me and I'll give you meaning and answers to life. This is a big claim as well. To go to Jesus, we go to the temple, we go to the scribes. I can imagine the priests and the scribes standing there and go, who the heck are you? They actually ask in another verse, well, who are you? who's your teacher? You know, we've had good teachers. We've got followers who listen to us. We've got the scrolls to learn from. You know, we've got, we're wise. But you rock up with nothing and you say you're the light of the world. You've got all the answers. Don't be in the dark like us. That's a bit rich. They go on, uh, he talks to them about his relationship with the Father, the Father God. And they ask him back, well, where is your Father? And then he throws back at them, do you not know me or my Father? Jesus replied, if you knew me, you would know my Father also. Now get where he's saying this, because this is the same. It's not just what he's saying, it's where he's saying. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. That is right in front of the temple. We're sort of like standing in the shadow of the temple, right in front. The temple is God's house. We might use that word God, you know, what is that sort of, what does that mean? But Jesus is saying, it's my father's house. And I'm standing in front saying... I'm the light of the world. If you want to know him, if you want to understand life, come through me. This is a big claim. They uh, didn't like that as well. But understand, this is a man just stood up and said, if you want to know everything about God, come to me because he's my father, which means that the sense of equality. I'm with God. I'm a man, but I'm God as well. As he sheds light on his identity, he's the light of the world, so he's showing them who he is. Jesus goes on, pick it up in verse 34, where he says, Very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. If the son sets you free from slavery, you will be free indeed. Now, this whole idea of slavery is quite current at the moment. If you saw on the news this week, you know, just that bunch of uh, people who, 29 people died in the back of a truck going into England uh, through human trafficking, human trafficking. They were slaves. Um, Chinese people caught, captured. They've lost all freedom. You belong to me. I'm going to sell you on to serve someone else. So we'll put you in the back of the truck, take you in another country, and it's like it's confronting for me because it's no longer a hypothetical. We have to look at history books and stuff. Yeah, yeah, we know that kind of happened before. But today, 
People are being trafficked. They lose every right to their own life. They get treated like nothing. Throw them in the back of the truck and they probably were gassed in the back of the truck by accident. But they're only slaves so we didn't need to care for them anyway. Jesus is saying, look, this is kind of what sin does. If you're a slave to sin, it rules you and it will lead you to death. Yeah, our sin is what, um, what we do that displeases God. So God created us in a particular way to live a way that glorifies him. And when we sin, we, we rebel against God. We say, no, God, I'm going to live, live life my way. I'm going to do my things and I don't do the things that he wants us to do. But all of a sudden that masters us. We don't have control over what we want to do because our sinful desires say, no, I want to go this way and further and further. All of our sin, suddenly we realise we're slaves to sin. We can't control it. It's taken over our life. That will lead you down the path of death and destruction, is what Jesus is saying. Very different to someone who's in the family. Somebody who's in the family is not a slave. They're treated very different. You can't imagine a royal in in England, uh, one of the royals, ever getting into the back of the truck, being transported around. At least not uh, taken into another country, sniffing the the fumes of the truck. That would never happen to a royal because they're in the family. There's lots of things around them that protect them from that. But Jesus is saying, no, no, come to me and I'll take you from being a slave to sin and I'll put you in the family, into God's family. Feel the weight of what's going on for those people back then. They're sitting in front of the temple and they're going, no, no, we need the temple We come to the temple to do sacrifices. We come to the temple to deal with our sin. We come to the temple to be a part of the family. Jesus says, no, I'm standing in front of the temple and I'm saying, no, everyone who comes from me, if the Son sets you free, and Jesus is claiming to be the Son of God, you will be free indeed. And that's where the people are asking the question, well, is this as good as it gets? We have to come to the temple every year. We have to make our sacrifices come humbly before God but then we go home and we sin again we're a slave to sin we go through this cycle year after year is this as good as it gets where Jesus is saying no come to me I will set you free come to me and I will I will do this Jesus is saying you need me in your relationship with God I'm the light of the world I'm revealing who I am and you need me in this process to be free there's an interesting spot in Sydney. A couple, of, a few years ago, um, my daughter Ash and I went down to Sydney and went to Cockatoo Islands, right in the middle of the harbour. And it's, you go in there and it's got these old buildings built by convicts. And those convicts uh, built it for themselves because that was a jail. That's where the convicts, the bad of the bad convicts, uh, used to go there because they couldn't escape. Because surrounded by there is just a long distance of water. Now, in those days, nobody could swim like we swim today. Uh, but in this water, there's sharks in the, in the harbour. So there's not only... You'll probably drown, and there's this fear of being eaten by sharks. To only, the only way in and out back in the day was by boat, where the guards come to and from or where the food supplies come from. It was only a boat. Now, Jesus could be saying, look, if you want to come from slavery, from from being in jail on that island to freedom on the mainland, you need the boat. But he's not just pointing to the boat, you need that. He says, I am the boat. You need me for life. You need me for salvation. Now they're hearing this and here's this man standing in front of them. 
you're a man. How are you going to give me life? How are you going to bring me to God? How are you going to free me from sin? This is the tension that's going on for them. <clears throat> it's not a vague, God will do that. But Jesus is saying, no, specifically me, I will do that. So what do they conclude? Jesus answered him, aren't we right saying that you're a Samaritan, demon-possessed? Now, Samaritans, this is kind of interesting because at the temple, you need to be, the closer you get to the temple, you need to be more the pure Israelite, the pure Jew. So in front of the temple was uh, the Jewish priests and then the men, the members of the family household could come to make the sacrifices in the front. They had sections for the women to come into. They couldn't get too close, um, just their culture of the day. They even had a Gentiles court. So even if you're a foreigner, you could come around the temple, but you couldn't get too close. But not if you're a Samaritan. They just really had it in for the Samaritans. Samaritan had to them this mixed up idea about God, you're a heretic. Not if you're demon possessed, you can't come anywhere near it because you don't believe in God, you, you follow the devil. So you can't come near the temple. So what they're saying by saying this, aren't, aren't you a Samaritan, aren't you a demon possessed? One, they're saying, you're a heretic. You don't belong here. This is for us, the real family. But you shouldn't even be standing here. Because you must be a Samaritan or demon-possessed or both. That's what they're saying. They don't want him. They don't like him. And in the end, as the to and fro come, when Jesus is trying to explain to them, no, no, I really am God, they come up uh, at the end of chapter 8 to say, Jesus says, very truly, I, uh, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born. So even before you know, your history, I am. And this I am statement comes up again because that's what God called himself back in Moses' day. God says, I'm the great I am. Jesus says, well, I'm the same God. I'm not a competing God. I'm not a different God. I am this God. I am. At this, they're looking at the man. They're going, we believe in God, but we're seeing him. They picked up stones and wanted to kill him. But it wasn't his time, so he got away. It's this tension. And I think we need to feel the tension because I think we need to understand what does it mean that Jesus is man and God because we can easily misunderstand who he is when we try and wrestle with that. I've gone through this myself when, I, you know, when I'm feeling spiritually dry, I'm thinking why and why do I feel so different to God? And I think there's a spectrum of how do we know Jesus as God and how we know him as man. And I think there's, it goes across... That, that on one hand he's human and we can understand him as that and the other, other position might be, oh, well, he's, maybe he's 50-50, he's half man, half God. Or the other one, well, he's truly divine, that he's not man at all, but he's come in spirit and he's just divine. And I'll show you th the consequences of holding any of those views on, on this spectrum of how we understand Jesus. See, if we think of Jesus too much, he's just the human, he does get very familiar like the brothers, you know, we've seen him walk around in his undies at home. You know, he's just a man. That so we go, well, Jesus is just a man, therefore he's just somebody in our history books that was, maybe he was amazing, he did these things, but he's not really God, but he's somebody, we, he's a historical figure we take notice of. But if you want to know this Jesus, where do you go? You look into your books, because he's part of history. He's just that character figure that we, you can still follow. You can still be a follower, of, claim to be a follower of Jesus, like you're a follower of any of the philosophers or anybody like that. But he's very much a man that's come and gone. 
If we start thinking that he's maybe 50-50, we start thinking, well, maybe he is a holy man, that he's, he is from God, but he's come as man, but yeah, he's that balance. He's not fully God, fully man, but he's, he's a holy man, maybe a prophet. He's God's mouthpiece. He knows God intimately, but he's a man that speaks God's word, that he knows a lot about God because he's got that connection with God. <clears throat> but it's hard to worship that, that man because he's a man that knows about God. He's just there to teach us about God. Or if we hold the position that he is uh, God, that he is divine, that he does these supernatural things, and we see all the miracles that he's doing. He's feeding, he's walking on water, he's raising the dead. He can do all these supernatural things. Only God can do that. So he is God. But see, this idea of God, I think we fall into this mystery thing of just, can we really know God God just does his thing. We don't fully understand what he does or how he does it or why he does it, but God's just out there. He's distant and we don't understand. That he's not like us. In fact, he's hard to know, that he's unknowable. Sure, we've got the record of Jesus, but if he's all God, we don't really, can't associate with him. Any of those things are the wrong view of Jesus, but it can lead you down the path of misunderstanding him and and getting the wrong Jesus. Lots of churches go down this path of seeing Jesus just a man or Jesus just a spirit even. There is another way. Uh, this might reflect my not great maths. But it's uh, the Jesus is 100% man. We can grab that on one hand. But he's also 100% God. And I think this is what John is going to great lengths in trying to pull this together. This is not easy. It's never happened in history that God and man have come together like this. But when we see how it plays out, we see Jesus, as John describes him, Jesus, as a man, is very knowable. As in, people are always saying, he's from Galilee. His brothers are saying, hey, we grew up with him, we knew what he's like. He's very knowable. He's like us. He also makes himself very vulnerable if you notice, Jesus is never about promoting himself. He always points to the Father. Even in those opening verses when his brothers are going, hey, you know, if you're the big, big shot that you think you are, go and you'll be Mr. Popular down at the festival. And he's going, no, 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 it's not about that. But he makes himself very vulnerable in saying, I serve the Father. And he lives that out. He's obedient to the Father. So even as a man, he takes uh, obeying the law very seriously. Yeah, just... He's sinless, something that we can relate to. As a man, he says no to the things he shouldn't be doing. He says yes to all the things his father wants him to do, even to the point of going to the cross. When we see Jesus going to the cross and go, did he really feel pain? Because he's kind of like God, doesn't feel pain like us. No, he's a man. We're grabbing hold of that 100%. As a man, he's hanging on the cross, bleeding, and at a point screaming. He does that. But he does that as a man to see other people saved, to see other people become or go from um, slaves to sin to sons. He does that as a man, he's saving humanity. But on the other hand, we're clinging to that 100% as well. And that's really helpful for us because he's 100% God, that he is with the heavenly father. He was there at creation. He spoke creation into being. He's the master of creation he is God, fully divine. But yet even in that, he becomes vulnerable. He steps down from heaven, 
enters our world and becomes one of us, enters our life. But even in that, he's still obedient to the Father. It's not, I'm God, I'm playing by my rules. No, I'm obedient to the Father, even to the point of going to the cross. Now, this we've got to think, this is God giving up his life, hanging on a cross. You know, he created the wood, he created the ground, he created the sunshine on him, he created blood, but yet he's giving himself up to creation, being condemned by, by sinful men. But he did it as God to save many. We can hang on to them both, that Jesus is human and he is fully God. And this is what John goes to great lengths at saying. Now, how this plays out, so we're going through this tension in John of people trying to understand why Jesus, because he looks like a man, but he claims to be God. But how this plays out is we find out later in the journey that Jesus' own brothers, one of his brothers, James, after Jesus uh, goes to the cross, dies and rises again and ascends to heaven, uh, a church builds in Jerusalem, we see it in, in, in the book of Acts, James, his brother, starts as the leader of the church. James, the one who was mocking him, going, go to the festival and show off down there. He's now convinced because he's seen the humanity of Jesus. And now through the resurrected Jesus, he goes, no, this wasn't just a man. He's God. So convinced was he that he was leading a church and in the time of Nero got put to death because of his belief. Jude was another one of... Uh, Jesus' brothers, who writes a book of, in the New Testament, you'll find. He's convinced that Jesus is truly Lord. The same one who was mocking him at the start of chapter 7. They're convinced. Nicodemus is mentioned in this passage. We didn't, we didn't look into that bit. But Nicodemus was... Uh, here's a guy early in the story that comes to Jesus asking questions. Who are you? How do we be born again? Questions like that. But he's there asking questions about Jesus, wrestling with, is he a human or is he, is he truly God? He's, he's involved with uh, the burial of Jesus because he's convinced that Jesus is truly the Son of God. All these people throughout the journey, they're struggling with it. They're wrestling with it because this is hard. How can it be man standing in front of us and God? But when they get it, they really get it and are convinced. This is what happens when we know Jesus. I, I know what this is like because there's sometimes in my life where I go, actually, I feel like I'm too familiar with Jesus. I'm treating Jesus like a historical figure and I just feel spiritually dry. That I, What am I doing following this man who lived 2,000 years ago? Because I forget about his divinity. But then there's other times in my life, I, I, I treat him, he's God, we worship him and we go all about God, but we forget about actually he is knowable because sometimes we think God is so unknowable. But I can know him. This is why it's important for us to get it. See, to get it is to know the real Jesus, to really taste that living water and to be free from sin and become family. And he's knowable. We can have a living relationship with him because he's the one that gives us that freedom. Let me pray for us on that journey because it's hard to get our head around but it's also a life-saving message. Let me pray. Dear Father God, we just thank you for revealing yourself to us in Jesus. Lord, this is hard for us. If Jesus was to stand in front of us, if we were like those people in the first century, that we wouldn't recognise him as God because he looks so much like a man, that he is a man. But Lord, when we get to know him, we realise it's you. It's you revealing yourself to us. Lord, help us in that journey 
not just for us, but as a church, Lord. When we worship, we worship Jesus because he's the one that gives us life. He's the man, but Jesus is the God. Help us to always cling to you, cling to the truth, so we might find life. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.